Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear ye the word of the Lord. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. In all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, mm -hmm. some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and in the cunning and craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things in, into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God's word for God's people, and God's people said amen. Amen. You may be seated. For the time that we're going to spend together, I want to talk a little bit about becoming one. Uh, if you can't tell by now, I am a fan of food. I am a fan of food. One of my favorite restaurants is Chipotle. When I am having a bad day, a steak burrito with black beans, lettuce, tomato, and cheese will go a long way with me. And if I'm having a really bad day, I'll order extra steak. I'm one of those type of people that if I have to say I'm hungry, it's probably already too late. Because by the time I start thinking about food, I want it. 
and then by the time I actually say I'm hungry, I want the food to already be on its way to my mouth. Y'all pray for me. I'm, I'm not quite delivered. I, I need food now. It's, it's nice to, you know, wait for the cooking and it's delicious and everything, but I just, I like to eat. A while back, Chipotle was making news because they made a decision. I like the steak burrito, but not everybody likes the steak burrito. One of the things they really liked at the time were the carnitas and the pulled pork. That was pretty popular. Uh, but Chipotle pulled the pulled pork, pun intended, off of the menu. The reason why is because they had a certain level of integrity that they wanted to operate by. And every place that they bought their supplies from, where they ordered the vegetables and got the, from the farm and the beef and the chicken and the pork, you had to operate at a certain level of integrity. You had to operate at a certain level of Chipotle standards. And whoever was supplying the pork they had discovered that they were not doing what they wanted to do with the pork. They were not one with Chipotle. And uh, these franchises are very intentional about how they operate because it's different people running different restaurants and they all have to operate the same. They all have to be one. They have to be on the same page to the point that I've seen uh, certain documentation that even the way you uh, you want to uh, open up a McDonald's, even the way you mix the glass cleaner together to wipe off the windows has to be a certain way. Uh, they had a documentary about McDonald's and they had three suppliers that were looking to uh, get into the mix of uh, providing the beef for their hamburgers and. Uh, the, one of the tests that they did for quality is they had, they had each one of them make a Big Mac using their beef and they had people who had to be able to taste all the Big Macs and not taste the difference. And if they could taste the difference, they couldn't use you as a supplier. It was all about uniformity. And so anyway, back to Chipotle. I told you I like food. <laughs> Chipotle got rid of pork off the menu altogether because they said you could not operate within our standards. So they stopped serving pulled pork at all their restaurants for a while. That cost them a little bit of money. But when people discovered why they had taken pulled pork off the menu, it actually gained them customers. Chipotle was concerned about their integrity, so they made a decision to keep in line with their ethical standards. Now, if a fast food restaurant can operate with that level of unity and can operate with that level of integrity, how much more so can the church do it? See, it's, it's about deeds and not just words. You can have nice words, but if your deeds don't match up to it, your words won't carry that much weight. 
Likewise, if what you say is not true, that also can carry weight. I can imagine the only reason that this pork supplier got on with Chipotle is because they said we will handle our process the way you want to. Probably signed some contracts and everything, but when they audited them and found out they weren't, anything else they could have said after that would have had no more weight. There's a story told by someone by the name of Paul Harvey. Uh, there were four uh, young men who were late to class, and when they entered the classroom, they all were one, and they decided to tell the professor that they had caught a flat tire because they had missed the test. And so the teacher said, that's fine. I understand those kind of things happen you're going to take a second test. And the test only had one question on it. Which tire was flat? Oh. <laughs> Integrity is about deeds and not just words. Integrity is about unity all heading forward in the same path towards Christ. And the Apostle Paul was talking about such matters when he was talking to the church at Ephesus. The church needed to become one. And they needed to operate in integrity. They needed to operate with unity. They needed to be of the same mind. The word fellowship which is a word we often like to use when we talk about people in the church hanging out together. We fellowship. We fellowship with other churches. We fellowship with each other. We have fellowship halls. But it comes from a word that means fellowshippers, people heading towards the same destination on the same ship. There was unity, and Paul appeals to this Christian unity based on seven things. Talking about there's one body, the body of Christ. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit. There is one hope, and that is the hope for eternal life. I mean, that's why we're here now, right? Because we don't want this to be the end. There's one Lord, the triune God. There is one baptism, and that is the baptism of the Spirit into Christ's body. There's one God and Father, and that's our Heavenly Father. One, repeated seven times in a row in this passage of Scripture. Becoming one makes everything work together. Makes it stronger. It makes it more cohesive. I look at certain things and I realize that they may be okay by themselves, but when you put them together with something, it makes it better. I look at cake. I told y'all I like food. Still have food on my mind, but you have what? You have your eggs and your butter and your sugar and your flour and your milk and your baking powder and all of these ingredients, right? And some of those things are nice on their own. I like eggs. I like milk. Butter makes everything taste better. I put sugar on things that most people, I'm not going to 
I've only been around a little bit, so I'm not gonna scare you too bad, but I put sugar on certain foods that people say I ain't supposed to put sugar on. That's all right though. It tastes better with the sugar on it. So when you see me grab a pack of sugar and say I put it on grits, don't get mad. That's what I like. I put it on other things too, but I'll I, I ease y'all into my food habits. You didn't call the DS on me. But yes, you got your eggs, your butter, your sugar, your flour, your milk, your baking powder. All of these things by themselves are okay. But if you were to put them in an oven, mixed together, you would be able to make a cake. It's much better together than if they were apart working together, becoming one. Uh, one of my favorite terms in business school was synergy. Because they would say with synergy, you could get more out of things working together than you would if those things worked upon their own. And they used to use a little mathematical equation, and it's hard for me to, to say it being an engineer, but they would say in business school, with synergy, two plus two equals five. They would explain that they thought you got that kind of effect with synergy because working together got you more than everybody trying to accomplish things on their own. It's a oneness. And then we have this bond of peace that he talks about in the, in the text. That when they use peace, the bond of peace is more than just the absence of fighting. It's more than showing up to a finance committee meeting or SPRC committee meeting and not going to blows. It's more than just smiling while the meeting goes on and then the meeting after the meeting is where you tear each other down. The bond of peace is even more than the community just being on one accord. It is a fullness of salvation that comes from God. See, the word mind in the Greek comes from a term for love, which is described as a, a bond of God that binds everything together in perfect harmony. I've, I've, I've learned as I study more that these terms are not just for the here and now, nor are they just for the future. They're for both, at the same time, in perfect harmony. Just like salvation, it's not just about what happens when you die. It's a, it's a great explanation. It's a great reason to be saved. But salvation, when it was used particularly in the Bible, was not only about making sure your future was okay, but making sure your presence was okay. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. What, you, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loose in heaven. It's about, and we've gotten bad about that, and part of it had to do with slavery. There was a theology out there that this present time is only temporary, and so therefore we should put up with whatever they give us because it would be better in the by and by. It's not necessarily true. You can have things better here 
You can have a good relationship with God here. You can have that unity and that oneness here. Right here on earth. And so for these kind of things, we don't just think about the future and we don't just think about the present. We think about the future and the present as one. And then there was another reason that he said that there is one God and one faith and one baptism and one spirit and one hope. The text forces this over and over again because you have to realize that there were separate people coming together as one, people who would not normally be together. People who, under normal circumstances, might have passed by each other without speaking. People who may not even live in the same area of town, but they're here trying to worship Jesus together. But not only that, not only do they have to become one because of that, but they have to become one because there is the only one. And when I say that there is the only one, during this time, the people who would later be called Christians were not the majority. You had a lot of people worshiping multiple gods back then. And because the people, these Hebrew people, and later these people who followed the way, and later who were called for Christians, they were viewed as atheists. Compared to the rest of the community, because you have, if it was a neighborhood, you have an oracle to Delphi, or an oracle to Mars, or an oracle to Athena, or you know, you know, you'd have all these shrines, and here these people are passing by all of these shrines because they don't worship there, don't believe in that system anymore. And so to the outside community, they were considered to be without God. And it wasn't that they were without God. They were with the one true God. And so that is where they were saying that there's the one faith and the one baptism and the one God. They were worshiping the one. And they were worshiping the right one, even when it wasn't popular. So the people there didn't understand that. So what the Apostle Paul was writing was to reinforce them. Yes, you're doing something strange compared to the other people in your area. Yes, you're out of the, the norm. And, but that is why you must stick together. That is why you must bond together behind the one true God so that you can be unified. It's bad enough that you're out of place with the rest of the community bad enough that you're being viewed as an atheist and strange but with the outside people fighting you you ought not be fighting the people inside home is where there should be peace the church where you worship is where there should be peace because you're going to get enough on your job you're going to get enough with your so called friends so this is about being one One God, one faith, one baptism. Even though there are different denominations, I have a, my doctrine and polity professor uh, was talking about a conversation that he's had, and I've had it before too. When people ask about what denomination someone is, and they say, I don't believe in denominations, I'm a New Testament church. And his response to that, and I'll probably use that sometime, is which one? Because the church at Philippi 
didn't do things the way the church at Corinth did. And neither one of them did things the way the church at Ephesus did. But they all believed in Jesus. So I don't get that off the wall about denominations. I mean, unless they have something completely wrong in their doctrine. But uh, we all want God, want Jesus, want faith, want baptism. Which is why we as United Methodists don't re-baptize. Not in the sermon, but I figure I'll talk about it for a little bit. You are not the working agent in your baptism. If you were the working agent in your baptism, we would not need to be baptized. You could just sprinkle some water over yourself and go on about your business. Whether you wanted to or not, God is the one that is doing the work in the act. Yes, it is an outward expression of an inward grace. But God is what makes it valid. So if someone were to join from another church and they say they were baptized in the Baptist church, there's no need to rebaptize them in the Methodist church. I think it's stuck. To do so would be to say God did not do it right the first time. What was was there water? Did did, did you believe? Oh, I think we're good. One. So then we have the unity in Christ, and we have the unifier. Uh, the, the work of Christ brings all of these things together. And he gives us gifts to the believer. And these gifts are given after Christ has ascended. And what are these gifts? They're the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. And they're there for the equipping of the saints and, and uh, helping us be mature and all of these things and one thing that I've noticed in my studies is we often look at these and we talk about the five-fold ministry and you have people being affirmed as apostles and you know people are, are prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists and I'm not going to get into the five-fold ministry right now but I'm going to say this the way people interpret that passage as is as if the apostles, the pastors, the prophets, the teachers, and the evangelists are supposed to be doing all the work. Those are gifts. But the equipping of the saints and the preparation for ministry is for everybody. There may be a time where the pastor, the apostle, the prophet, the teacher, the evangelist may not be able to be reached. And you have to work your faith out for yourself. You have to spend time studying the Bible for yourself. You have to spend time. Yes, I pray for everybody in this church. Yes, I pray for everybody I come across. But you still have to pray for yourself. The goal is for all of the believers to be equipped. Not just the people who are out front. And not only should they be 
equipped, they should be settled and mature. We cannot be tossed back and forth by any doctrine that comes along, any popcorn theology or societal peer pressure. We need to be settled on the word of God and not just take anything anyone says as the outright gospel. Seminary has been a very informative and educational experience for myself. There are some people I come across and I believe, I think to myself, I cannot believe they would turn you loose on a pulpit on Sunday. I've, I've come across some people who I really was had to ask and teaching a Bible class do you know Jesus? I understand debating the academic merits of the text. I love that. That has made me a better preacher. That has made me a better studier. But there are some things I just wonder. Do you really believe in Jesus? Or are you here for a check? How are you pastoring the church? I've heard some say, you know, the way the Bible should be interpreted is the way the majority of the people think it should be at any given time. And then they say that if a bunch of people or enough people in one particular area can decide that the Bible don't mean what it say it mean right then, then that should be the way it goes. That hurt my head saying it. God is not a man that he should lie, right. nor is he the son of man that he should right. cause to repent. There's a reason this word has stood for 2,000 plus years. It's a whole lot of stuff that's come and gone in this time period. Men pass away, but the word of God is forever. So we have to be mature. And not only do we have to be mature on our own, we have to be mature in community. Being mature by yourself in the house and then immature when everybody else comes around does the body no good. If you spend the time in your Bible, if you spend the time in prayer, if you spend the time in worship, mm -hmm. you won't be swayed back and forth. You'll have the ability to keep an even keel and be settled when you see some of the strange things. And you'll be grounded. You'll be anchored. You'll be unswayed. I have a, uh, they always say your, your ministry is where your misery is. And I have a little personal pet peeve that I always work out, and I, I, I try to continue to improve on it as best I can in terms of maturity. I have a problem, and I really had a problem with it when I was in college, and now that I'm where I am now, I'm starting to see it some more. You have people that are swayed by new doctrine. Somebody comes up with a book or somebody finally tells somebody about something and they, 
they switch. I've seen many a person uh, converted or completely leave our religion altogether just because somebody told them something that they didn't know. And because they told them something and they didn't know, the, the next question or the next statement was, is your pastor is lying to you. And then they go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, you know, they, they've done 15, 20 religions in 15, 20 years. But if you would have settled, you can know when somebody is taking four or five scriptures out of context and using them against you or against your faith. But you only get that on your own. I can help for 20, 30 minutes a week every Sunday, but you're probably going to need a little more time than that in order to gain the mastery, and that will have to happen on your own. And not only that, everything I say, you ought to be able to go back and check on your own to make sure I'm not up here just making it up as I go. Being mature and settled not only in community, I mean, not only by yourself, but in community. And then when it comes to speaking the truth in love, I was convicted when I read and studied this because I had the opinion about speaking the truth in love as I would think many other people had. I thought speaking the truth in love meant you saw somebody doing something wrong and you told them, but you didn't necessarily cuss them out about it. Because you love them and you want them to do better. And so I thought this might have been like a brotherly love, but it's not. When they say speaking the truth in love, the love that they use is agape. It's not a brotherly love. It's not a romantic love. It's not an infatuation love. It's not a love where you say something mean with a smile on your face and end it with I love you in order to get your shot in. Speaking the truth in love is a high sacrificial love. A love that does not keep score. When they say speak the truth in love, they're saying to speak the truth in love to the point that you put the other person over yourself. So when you speak the truth in love, that is the approach that you are supposed to take. To put the other person over yourself. Why? Because somebody decided to put themselves, put you over themselves on a cross. Someone decided when they didn't have to that they would be the sacrifice for us, the replacement for us. And because this one person hung, bled, and died for our sins, and not only that, but rose again on the third day with all power in his hand, we ought to be able to march to the same drum. We ought to be able to head in the same destination. 
We ought to be able to head in the same purpose. We all ought to be unified under Jesus. We all ought to become one. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open, and we invite you to come.